Since God is sovereign in all things, shouldn't that really change how we think about history? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. So when people think about history, there's there's a few different philosophical schools, if you will, about how, how history played out, right? One is kind of the great man theory, which is significant men came along and they were the ones that drove history. So you see a lot of biographies and that's kind of the idea is that, that if you understand what the great men did, then you understand history. Another way to look at it is that one event follows another and you kind of follow through events, typically political events, but they can also be societal events and say that A follows B follows C and that's what drives history. Of course, our modern school system basically says there is no pattern to history, so we won't teach history, we'll teach social studies because we'll just because all that's important is this society and not how it connects to anything else. But as Christians, we should be thinking about it as this is the sovereign will of God. This is his working out his will in the world. So how should that affect our view of history? I mean, it should affect our view of history by by causing us to say just what is, what's God doing? Do we think God is primarily working through great men? Do we think he's working through political or societal events? Do we think that God is working through cultural changes and so forth? We can ask those questions, or we can just start with some of the really basic things that are not that hard to glean from Scripture, where God just says, hey, here's what I'm doing in history. There was creation, there was fall, there was redemption, redemption accomplished in Christ, and that redemption was to put a church on earth so that, like Jesus taught us to pray, so that the will of God would be done on earth as it's done in heaven. And if you think that, then you then what you do is all of a sudden you start looking at the church and what's happening in the church is actually the primary thing that's happening in human history, in in our history now. And and in the time up to the time of Christ, it was pointing towards that. It was looking forward to that. It was it was waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, like Paul says. So if you think that the primary things that are happening in history are the church, you start thinking about historical events very differently. Part of why I I find this to be an interesting podcast is is at church we're studying a book right now called Revival and Revivalism. It's a book about the history of the first and second great awakenings, primarily in North America. And what's happening is the time period that those revivals are covering are the late colonial period up through the revolution and shortly thereafter, kind of the period just to prior the Civil War. So it covers a lot of things that we've all studied. We all grew up reading about these things in our, our various textbooks and grammar school books in school. But it it backgrounds a lot of the things that we've been taught are really significant. Like in this book, the American Revolution is not foregrounded. It's not the thing that creates America. America is really being shaped by the movement of the Holy Spirit in various local churches, in particular cities and counties and states. And the American Revolution sort of just drifts in the background. And you could argue, okay, well, that's just a perspective. I mean, he's writing a book. He's just trying to say a particular thing. But what's really striking is as you read this story about it and you see what God's doing, you start thinking about the American Revolution in different ways. 
you don't think of it as the primary thing anymore. You think, oh, wow, I can see how what's happening here in these particular states is really changing the way that people thought about things like freedom and liberalism. And you can see how there's tensions among denominations that are aligned with Great Britain and they're having to deal with this issue of those countries splintering apart. What do we do? And the various theological commitments of the individuals actually shaped how America was shaped there, not necessarily the other way around. It, the, the politics were not primary. And it's interesting even when you look at like the American Revolution because people will say, you know, the American Revolution comes down to an issue with the divine right of kings. How much is a representative of God, how much authority does the king have? Basically, and that's really what the argument was. Well, in the end, that's a theological argument, and theology has to drive it to the point that you start to say this is wrong. And so even in the secular teaching of the American Revolution, they end up teaching it as being a theological thing without bothering to deal with the fact that it. what's the theology that actually drove it? Because they all say the divine right of kings, it's a religious thing. It's only at certain secular levels that they teach it that a lot of people come away with it was all about a rebellion. You know what I mean? And well, taxation without representation. And right. And so, and it gets, and it's really interesting because as you were talking and as we've been reading through this and discussing it, it's been really interesting because even growing up in school, in Christian school and, and learning in a certain way, you had this question. People were going, well, how can something good arise primarily out of just a rebellion, a rebellion against authority? Is that what it was? And, you know, and there's the, you know, give me liberty or give me death or, you know, and, and all of a sudden you start reading this and you go, it was driven by a lot of other things than just that. It was framed by a lot of things, and there were theological issues behind it. And it's really been what have we, what have you focused on that really frames your, you know, that that sets how you think about these things. And Christians don't step back and go, of course, theological issues would be driving it. We go, we accept the narratives that other people hand us, and there's a real problem with that. That we need to change the way we think about history by starting off by changing the way we think about God. And it really changes what the church does in the present, because if what you're saying is people understanding of who God is and how he acts in the world, that that ends up affecting the world and those ideas. And I'm not even saying those ideas just affect the people inside the churches. They affect a far broader community. Everybody was arguing about divine right of kings, including people that never went to church, because this was the argument. And so, you know, it's, it's very easy to pretend like the church doesn't have this influence, but it actually has an influence down the, the road that what it teaches and people start to think in a certain way and they talk to each other in a certain way. And this has really significant political implications. And, and another part of this, too, is, you know, when we're looking at history as, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of a, a theological uh, – a lot of it is theologically driven, and you know you have you know the importance of the church in world history. That, that that's kind of the central you know story of world history of God saving a people for Himself, of God uh, getting a bride for Himself. But you know there's you know, some of those other things that you mentioned, some of the you know secular ways of looking at it. We're seeing it as driven through you know particular people. Um, I mean, those are things that are not entirely foreign to a. Uh, a understanding of history that is um, that is driven by the Bible because you do you look at the Book of Judges for example and the Book of Judges is a bunch of quote you know quote unquote great men some of them not not so great but it is driven by a series of people that God raised up to do specific things and if you want to look at you know broader implicate you know broader movements in society well you look at Judges again it's it's about people who are 
you know, rebelling against God. And that is also what's driving the event. And so, so you, you know, if you focus on one of those things, you, you miss the broader picture, but they do have a place. And, you know, another modern one is it's all about oppression and, and how were, you know, the women treated, how are the homosexuals treated? And there's no real story to it. It's just about, you know, what was the experience of the people? And, and that's something that that's not the driving force, but the Bible does talk a lot about oppression of people. And that, that is one of the, you know, sub points that is driving history and as part of God's plan. Right. But in fundamentally, there's a big difference between saying a great man came along, right? And, and this has been a debate among secular historians. Is it that the circumstances produce the men or did the men produce the circumstances? And the Bible basically goes, no, it's God. I mean, and if and one of the things that's really interesting to me about this, and if you're sitting at home, I mean, and you're asking, well, I don't really care that much about history, or how does that actually really have a practical application? You're does wrong. It, <laughs> <laughs> there is that. I mean, but what's interesting to me is when I talk to my children about maturity, one of the things I tell them is, you know, one aspect of maturity is being able to look back at yourself and see what you did in the past and see, you know, you can say, man, I can't believe I did that. A real mark of maturity is when you can start applying it to the present. When in the moment that you're in, you can actually begin looking and going, because you can look back and you say, oh, this is what God was trying to teach me. This is what God was trying to teach me. But real maturity is when in the moment you can say, oh, wait a minute, I get what he's trying to teach me. I get what's going on around me, and you can cooperate with it. And that's something that's really lost in the sense of we don't look at history because we don't understand that if you really get to understand this, if you really start to look at the world in this way, all of a sudden the world that around us seems so incomprehensible. What is going on with, with Donald Trump and with the Republicans and with all these different things and the things that are falling apart is that you can actually start to look at the world and go, wait a minute, I get what God is doing. I actually understand and I know how I'm supposed to respond. And that's something that seems really lacking in the church. So our family's been, we we just finished this week, we just finished going through in our, our personal family worship through the book of Second Kings. And we've gone through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And they're really helpful books, at least for me. I don't know about my kids, but they're helpful for me thinking about this as we go into a political cycle. Because it's all about the rise and fall of kings over and over and over. And we would have this sort of game we'd play where, you know, so-and-so is, became a king. He reigned for two years in Jerusalem. And then, you know, get the kids to predict, did he do good or evil in the sight of the Lord? And you know, Guess evil, you're always, yeah. Yeah. You're, <laughs> if it's Israel and Judah, you're pretty much, you know, saying if it's evil, two you've got years, like 75% Probably evil. Um, but... But it's it, what's really fascinating about that is it is a, it is a telling of the history of these kings, but as soon as a king's introduced, you get the measure that he has, and that measure is always did he do good or evil, and and how is it determined whether or not he did good or evil? It's did he follow God or did he follow idols, and if he followed God, was he diligent in his assault on the idols that his father or grandfather had allowed into the land? Right. Did he tear down the high places? Did he let the high places stand? And and being a good king didn't always mean that he was politically successful. Some of the good kings in Judah weren't. You could see how they made bad foreign alliances. and But they're still said that, hey, they followed God. They did what was right. They didn't do what was evil. And that's a really helpful way of just thinking about the. this is how God's measuring politicians. 
And he's telling us, this is the history of my nation. This is the history of what I'm doing in my nation. And along the way, he says to some of them, hey, I'm going to destroy everything that you see. I'm going to destroy it because of the idols that were raised up that the people worshiped. I'm going to destroy this entire country because of this. And meanwhile, things happen. Just normal political things happen. Famines and wars and marriages and alliances, those are all happening. And over top of it all, God's saying, I'm in control of it. There's nothing here that is happening that is beyond my control. And and there are ends to it. And eventually you're going to get carried away into captivity. And that's that's not to say, you know, we should be pessimistic because of that that's the kind of God we serve. But it's it's to say, look at how God was working through history and just telegraphing what he was doing and showing us, here's how you should read history. Are they worshiping me or not? Another part of that, too, is when you're reading Kings, it's often pretty clear cause and effect as to why things are happening. You know, not not 100 percent, but generally if a king, you know, even if a righteous king, often when something bad happens to him, it is pretty clear why. And and so, you know, it, it's something where when we're looking to non-biblical history, it can be harder to discern that because we don't have it written in the Bible Here's why. Here's the important thing you need to know about this period. But it's something where we also shouldn't expect it to be a complete mystery all the time. And part of it is is because of the mindset that people have that are writing the history books. Because if they had the mindset of these bad things happened, was there serious sin in his life that would lead toward these things? Then you could, I mean, then those things would be recorded and it would be easier to see it. It doesn't mean that it couldn't easily be seen, but because people are looking at it through that lens, it's going to be very difficult to see. Because everybody that's writing a history book, they're always choosing what do you put in and what you don't put in. Right. And if they don't see it, see it as being relevant, then all of a sudden you can't even find it out without going to all the first-person you know, documents and everything else. You look at Romans 1, and Romans 1, I mean, we've said this on the podcast many times, is Romans 1 says that, you know, when you are rebelling against God, when you want to suppress the truth, when you want to to not retain God in your knowledge, that he turns you over to certain sins that we can see in our society. And so that's a very basic application of this, that when we see certain sins in our society, we should be going back and saying, well, the church clearly is failing to cause God to be known in the society. And even that suppression will tie itself to even our understanding of history, like you were talking about. There's a part of it where when you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, it causes you to miss details that matter. It cause, I mean, and so there's a part of it where sometimes just even the nature of things feeling incomprehensible is because of our culture's desire to suppress the truth. And you actually have to, you actually have to act. I mean, there's a part of it where is the church crying out to God, going, "Help us understand these things. Show us these things. Let us let us understand the times that we're living in." And I think there's just a part of it where we get the church very often just gets very comfortable with having no idea and just going, oh, well, and just throwing its hands up and just saying, well, we know God's in control, but not not like not like he's in control, like he's actually doing something specific. And when you're talking about secular historians, I mean, the trend these days is, you know, they, they never tell you any like application of, of anything that they're writing about. You know, the most they might say is, well, you know, I, these raise large questions that we should, you know, consider and it's just questions, questions. You know, these raise questions. It's never, Unless it's no something answers. that the whole historian profession has already agreed right. is a set thing. Slavery is evil. Right, right. There's, there's, there's some things. But if you're getting into, you know, a little bit off the beaten path, then you're, it's, there's no answers. There's, there's just questions. And so it's something where, yeah, there, 
they're 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 not giving you any actual actual answers but if you're looking at it through a biblical worldview it's something where you should see answers and it's something where you can't be simplistic where you can't be saying well you know these are the good guys so everything they did is good and we should emulate everything they did you know something that's too simplistic but you know it is something where we should be able to be drawing actual conclusions and even in conclusions for our lives and even conclusions about things that are happening right now like you know, we're recording this when it certainly looks like in the 2024 election it will be President Biden against former President Trump. And that says real things about our society. It says real things about what God is doing in our culture. I mean, these men are, both of them are quite old to be taking that position. And, you know, one is very crude. The other, certainly in public at least, with with reasoning things through and with understanding what's going on at times. And yet God has chosen that this is where we are and this is where people are voting for. And you know, it's still a large number of people who profess to be Christians here in this country. And so we should be going, what is God doing here? God raised up these two candidates and he raised them up for real purposes. And we're supposed to look and say, you know, obviously the the most obvious thing is it's judgment. I mean, we're a we're a nation that's that's gone blind to who God is, so He's turning us over to blindness and all kinds of other areas. But the church is supposed to be saying, "Why are we experiencing the wrath of God, and how do we need to repent?" You need to be able to see it as judgment, because there were times where that's what God did. As God says, "I've given you the rulers you deserve. You you want carnality, so I've given it to you." That doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean that the church is supposed to go, God says carnality, you know, yay. And I think this is a real issue is when you don't look at history, when you don't read like the passages where you're talking about reading about the different kings, when you don't think about what God's done throughout all the years where he judges nations, this is how he does it. And does the church go, we want this, or does the church go, wait a minute, this is what's going on. We need to repent. We need to run and go, oh, dear God, you've given us what we've asked for. Please forgive us for asking for it. In the context of this podcast, the question is really, what's the more significant? Where are the more significant things happening? Are the more significant things happening that you read about on Drudge Report, or are they happening at your local church and all the local churches down the street and so forth? The things that went on during the coronavirus were a very good indicator of, they'll tell you a lot about where your church was. Did your church shut down worship? What reasons did they shut down worship? Did they, you know, I mean, and like you look at John MacArthur, who said for years, like, you shouldn't be political. John MacArthur's church ended up, his people said, we're going to go to church. John MacArthur came with him. He stood with them. And his church stood for meeting and stood for worshiping in a, in a way that was good. I mean, there were, I mean, it was, it was good, but there are lots of churches that did not do that. There are lots of churches that effectively split over this issue or that shut down for a, a, a significant amount of time. And so you can see a lot of things where, like you said, what's going on is absolutely is happening at the local church. It, it's, but I, and you, part of it is you have to take a step back and you have to say, God rose up coronavirus. Why did he do that? Well, the most consistent thing through every country in the world was to shut down the worship of God, to shut down the meeting of churches. Right. So the first conclusion to make is he doesn't like the worship of churches because if he liked it, it would have continued. And so if you shut down your local church, then you should be going, what does God not like about our worship? Because if our worship was pleasing to him, he could have kept it coming. It wasn't that hard for him to. He's God. 
but he wanted it to be shut down. And too often we think about it, we don't go, what is God doing? Well, God was shutting down the worship all over the world. And we should be going, and that comes to be personal and local, is why doesn't he like our worship? But if you just say, well, there's a pandemic, so of course this is how we have to respond, then you've rejected the idea that God is sovereignly choosing these things and he's making his decisions. And that God's the same yesterday and today. And when you open up your Bible and you see cases where God shuts down the worship that he commands, when he says things like, I hate your new moons and your festivals, when he says, hey, if there was anybody there with any courage, they would have shut the doors and stopped the worship. When, when he does those things in the Old Testament, he tells you why he's doing them. And so we shouldn't think that he's different today or that he has different standards. And if he was doing that to us and we had eyes to see that, then we should we should tremble and say, oh, how are we just like these circumstances and these people that he's already talked about in the Old and New Testaments? And one of the issues with um, the broader church today is that there's a lot of people don't read the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, New Testament were given for different purposes. And if you're not reading the Old Testament, you're not getting most of the messages that are given for how God deals with nations, for how God deals with societal sins. And that there's a lot more emphasis of that in the Old Testament than in the New. And that's a really good point because a lot of people, you know, we did one re- a podcast recently on dispensationalism. And it's kind of like, well, the Old Testament, that was for Israel. Well, what about in Isaiah where it's saying, well, Egypt, this is what's going to happen to you. And Moab, this is what's going to happen to you. And Edom, this is what's going to happen to you. Well, the judgment that was coming upon those other nations, they weren't because they were Israel. They were because they were sinning and God is sovereign over all things and he's in control of all things. And he pours out his wrath on nations that weren't Israel. Right. And he pours out his wrath on America. And so to read those things and say they have nothing to tell us, really? How, how does that work? Like when you come to Hebrews, Hebrews says that in times past he spoke through the priests or through through prophets and through priests, and now through his son, he doesn't say that his authority, the way he deals with nations or the way he works out his authority in the world, there's no speaking to that changing. And I think that's really key because when you when you mentioned the part about your new moons and I would shut the doors, I mean literally, can you read that in the Old Testament and understand that there is no difference? between what God did at times then and what happened during coronavirus. There was literally, I mean, it is the exactly the same. And that your ability to understand what God was doing depended on you looking at it and thinking about God having actual authority. When it, when it says in Romans 13, the powers that be are ordained of God, that it was no different than if it was King Jehoshaphat or King Josiah or your local, you know, your local uh, you know, county commissioners. Those are exactly the same thing. And I think there's this part of it where we look at it and we go, those are completely different. And Scripture's going, no, you need to be able to see that God is interacting with the world and he hasn't changed how he interacts with it. And you look at, I mean, Malachi, where it says, you know, who uh, messianic prophecy, who will come and shut down this altar, who will come and shut these doors, right? Which is obviously what Christ does through his sacrifice. He ends the sacrificial system. But the point here is that, now the church is supposed to be that man. We're the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is actually supposed to be shutting down this false worship. And instead, what we're doing is promoting it so much that God had to intervene and shut it down again. And we should recognize that's a real judgment on the church. You know, another thing that you can see even in the coronavirus, and, you know, the reason to use this as an example is to to think back what God has done in the past so that we do the right thing now, because history is not this 
this abstract thing that doesn't have any ongoing effect. It should have an ongoing effect now. And so another thing that happened is that you look at how many scientists have been proven to be liars and fools, but yet the society, the church has said, these people are experts. They know what they're talking about. How many churches talk about climate change? How many churches, you know, they idolize all these things that are about these scientific, you know, experts. And the whole expert culture is a real sin in the church that we embrace the expert culture that, that we go, why would we go to God? We'll go to the physician. And that doesn't mean that you don't go to the doctor, but we give them a lot more power and a lot more uh, expectation of understanding than they actually have. In the coronavirus, God was making that abundantly clear that everybody should understand you're not supposed to look to men for answers. It doesn't mean that men haven't done studies. They haven't done real work. They haven't really tried to take dominion. But just expressing their opinion is not taking dominion. It's just them saying, I know more than you do, when a lot of times they don't. I mean, people obeyed experts far more with far more precision and care than they obey the words of God. Right. You know, what I mean, I mean, the prescription. I mean, it was they said this and they they took how and they would treat people that counteracted it as if they were. How dare you? How dare you say anything against what he said? Who do you think you are? I mean, things that they would never say about God's word. Well, I mean, did God really say that? You know, were God's clear in Scripture? You know, women speaking in church or women have authority. Oh, you can wash that away. But a man said these things about something that he knew very little about. Or and, a woman. Or a woman. And you had to absolutely trust it. And you look at it, and I mean, I think one of the, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention is one of the more conservative denominations, right? But yet the Southern Baptist Convention, the president of it said, well, the government said we're supposed to shut down worship, so we'll shut down worship longer than they said. And then the government says, but if you go to a Black Lives Matter rally, you can't catch COVID there. So they said everybody should go to Black Lives Matter rallies. Well, this is absurd. I mean, it's like so ridiculous and so contrary to Scripture and this is how the church was reacting. It shows the level of judgment on the local church. When we look at history and we exalt what man's doing or we exalt the societies or we exalt the experts, right, which is how history is typically written, we have to understand that we're presuming a view of God, which is actually a sign of judgment or a sign of blessing. Right? In Deuteronomy 28, 13 and 14, it says, And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not be beneath. If you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and are careful to observe them, so you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. And so God is saying, look, if you're in obedience, then people will look and go, we're being driven by what the people of God are doing, right? You will be the head and not the tail. You won't be wagged like a dog. Instead, you'll be wagging the world like a dog. You have the one hand if people obey, and then the other hand is Deuteronomy 28, 43 through 45. The alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. So we're starting out with this view of history that says the church is always responsive, which means that's actually a sign of cursing on the church when the church is responsive. But we've embraced that as the normative view of history, while the way it should be is that the church should be obeying God, and through that obedience, the world responds to the church. 
I mean, and, and even to give an example still within the coronavirus, both our experience, the experience of every church that I know of, at least in the U.S., the experience of John MacArthur's church, was those churches who said we're going to obey God. They had no problem being open. They had no problem continuing to be open. They were not, they were not shut down. And there is this part of it where, I mean, and obviously— right, and there's a one church in Canada. But other than that, I mean, there's that's many I mean, examples in, in the of, U.S., at least. I mean, that's yeah. what I mean. It's very specifically in the U.S. that I know of. I don't know of any church that actually pushed back against it, that where the government didn't—the government didn't—very frequently, I mean, our experience was as soon as you said that, they went, no, you're right. You're, you know, you absolutely have that right and that authority, and we shouldn't have said that you don't. And like I said, obviously that's contextual. There can be times where God— where God causes and the— And that was, that was deliberately trying to make logical arguments, too. That wasn't right. just going, but God said we should meet. That was right. also going, you're holding a different standard for the church than you are from McDonald's. Or our Constitution and our state makes it right. absolutely clear Illegal. that you have no authority. Right. I mean, and this has been—and God's been, it's been a blessing of God that he's allowed this to be true. But I'm just saying the part of it was is you could see the reward for obedience. It was, it was immediate. It was right there. And it was very, very observable. And we should— and, God's intention in many ways was to encourage his church to go, do you understand if you follow after me, I, I do have the power to reward you. Don't fear man. And so there's even a part of it where you can even see how this can tie into your church looking at the events that happen, that you pray about them, and that it causes you to have greater courage to go and obey God in other ways. And so, I mean, what's if people take one thing away from this episode, it should be, it's very easy for us to think men are doing things and they're they're doing it as agents of God. And because of that, you have to look to what God is doing and not just look at what the men are doing. Because too often, it's so easy to see what the men are doing. It's easy to get frustrated. It's easy to get angry at what the men are doing. But that doesn't really help you. What helps you is looking through that and saying, God, what are you doing here? And a lot of times, based on the Old Testament, based on what God has revealed in the past, you can look at it and you can go, I see what God is doing. Because God's not trying to be subtle. It's like you, when you spank your child, you're not trying to be subtle and go, hey, I don't want you to know why I'm spanking you. He wants you to know why you're being spanked. And so I think too often the church kind of treats it like, well, these men are doing it and there's nothing we can do instead of saying, first of all, it's God doing it through these men. So there is something we can do. And secondly, why is God doing this through these men? I think it's complex. And it's complex because there's a variety of different levels at which we can try and deceive ourselves. Number one is to say, oh, no, God's not doing this. We saw this with, I remember particularly with Hurricane Katrina, that people were saying, oh, there's no way that God would actually send that as a judgment. Like large, prominent, yeah, exactly. quote unquote, Christian leaders. You saw that with 9-11. Oh, no, God would not do this. Um, so, so there's the, just the denial that God's judging. Then the second thing is, well, maybe you say God's judging, but you deny that he's judging you or judging the church or judging America, you know, whatever group you're you judging wanna, anyone in particular, any, anyone in particular that you might identify with. Right. That you're part of. Right. Um, so, the, so then you've got those two levels and, and you've got to get those two things right before you can then say, all right, I'm being spanked. Why am I being spanked? And and so those are you've you've got barriers before that, and those barriers are pretty hard to overcome, unless you're being really humble before God. And I mean, and it's when you deal with spanking. I mean, just you have to go back and you have to think about with children. You have to think about yourself. Very often, when discipline happens like this, 
the very first thing that you, I mean, it's sometimes you just literally think, and the first thing that pops into your mind is often the, you know, I mean, sometimes it is not even hard. You, well, could it could it be all the all the just very deliberate sinning that I've been you know what I mean like you know, you know what I mean it's like I mean it's it, it's not even a complex thing frequently when you ask yourself what could it be and sometimes you are deceiving yourself so badly that you have to actually cut through that to see it but once you do you realize oh this should have been obvious to me and part of it can be that it's because you know it can be you it can be your family it can be your church it can be your community it sure. can be the nation there's all these different it could be the visible church there's all these different things that we're part of and God does judge at all those levels when when David goes out and does a census people start dying in Israel well they didn't choose to do the census they were forced to do the census but God is still judging them and so when we look at judgment, though, it's really easy to skip and go, is it me? Is it my family? Is it my church? And just go, God's judging the bad people out there. Right. And the other thing, too, is, I mean, just for, you know, for completeness sake, I mean, it's every bad thing that happens isn't a judgment on something specific. You know, other I mean, other than beyond, you know, Adam's sin or something like that, you know, because, you know, you look at the scripture and, and all the martyrs, I mean, that they're dying, but then to, to die is gain. And so, so you have this other balance where God does bring people through trials and tribulations and often it's judgment. Other times it's not. And, and you know, there's the, you know, there's a, a eternity that we're looking towards, not just the temporal life. So there is there is that side of it. So we, it's not that every single thing that happens, we have to say, here is the sinner. You know, just like, uh, you know, when, when Christ is saying, did this man sin or did his father? Well, so God would be glorified. Actually, you, you shouldn't have been, you don't need to find, pick out the sinner because God had, a, a, he had a plan, but it wasn't as simple as, you might right, want to because do. there's multiple things that God is doing, and so he could be doing some of those other things. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't still go, right, everything that we look at, we shouldn't go, well, this is judgment. But everything that we look at, we should go, this is God deliberately, purposefully fulfilling his will and moving forward the world. And if you want to know why God moves or what's God's main purpose in the world, Romans 8 gets, gets to that point. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And there you have uh, Paul talking about why is God doing all things. And the reason why he's doing all things is uh, the main driving force is uh, to, to save the elect. And um, everything works together for that in, in ways that are not always direct. You know, how were, you know, in, in 500 B.C. China, how were those things working together for good? Well, it's, it's a it, – there's a – it's a, it's a it, Far back on a long chain of things, but but we do know from this verse that it is part of God's plan. And I mean, that's a really significant verse because it gives you a philosophy of history. And when we take this verse and apply it, we don't often apply it and how we read history. We're often applying it to particular personal circumstances. I'm going through this trouble, but I can trust God that all things are working together for good to those who are the called, which is not a bad application of it, but it's a small application this is saying all things, and then it's talking about the called. You know, it's talking about the church. And and so you could say 
this is a verse that tells you how to interpret history. And and if you start there, then you can go back and you can look at the American Revolution. You can look at the French Revolution. You can look at what's happening eight years ago in American political economics. And, and you can understand, okay, what's happening? What's happening with the people of God at this time? How are things working together for their good? And everything else is bit players. All the rest of that stuff is background. It's all noise. But we've been trained by the secular world to think that that's the significant stuff. I mean, it says all things work together, but it also is gives us a perspective on what the important things are. Because, you know, maybe not quite so much anymore, but you go back a few generations and the important thing were the Greeks and the Romans. Well, they they are they do factor into scripture. They are prophesied of, um, but they're not the, the the major players in in scripture in in the in the story that scripture is telling of history. And so, you know, the 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 idea that they are the main ones we need to be learning about is is a little misplaced. Or or I mean, again, they become background. They become the setting. You can say, look at what's happened with the Greeks and the Romans, and well, okay, there's interesting things that happen there that are drivers for the gospel. You know, you get a common language, you get Greek that spreads, and then you get a common government, so you kind of break down borders. So the gospel has a common language and a common, you know, a common political space in which to spread. And you can say, oh, okay, I see what God's doing. And you think of what's happening with all those Roman emperors as being much less significant relative to the gospel Right. At, at a macro level. And then you can also look at it at the micro level where there's, you know, there's the verse that says that these things were given to us as examples, where we do have examples of things um, in, in a, at a micro level we can apply in, in different ways. But when you're looking at the broad scope of history yeah. the, and God God calling a people to himself, then, then some of these things fade into the background. And one thing that's important, especially when you talk about the Greeks and the Romans, is to remember that God said the church is going to destroy them and make them like chaff in the summer threshing floor. So they are have a really significant role, and the significant role is not let's exalt them and let's go back and study the Romans and the Greeks. It's how do you defeat the Roman thought that continues today? How do you defeat the you know the Roman thought was basically the worship of of the state, and the Greek thought, which is basically the worship of knowledge. And so, how do you defeat these kingdoms that have taken over? And so, I mean. That's a very major thing because that's what we're supposed to be doing based on Daniel 2 is we're supposed to be destroying these things. But this verse, when you go back to Romans 8, right, it's saying, you know, to those who are the called according to his purpose that all things work together for good. And then it goes on, and I don't think we can disconnect what comes after from those verses, which is that he's causing his people to be conformed to the image of his son. And so this is... The broader, you said saved, it's the broader saved, not the narrow saved. This isn't just coming to faith. This is becoming more like Christ. It is the full salvation until glorification. And so God, when he's doing things, sometimes, you know, he brings trials into your life, not because of your sin, but because you need to be sanctified. You need to to mature in your faith. You need to trust God more. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience and let patience have her perfect work. You can be perfect and tired, not wanting nothing, right? I mean, this is what God says he brings trials in. And so you have to tie all things work together for good. You can do the prosperity gospel type view, which is that means I'm going to get everything I want. It's going to be an easy life. Or you can do the biblical view, which means 
he's going to use all things to mature his church and to mature us individually. I mean, and I want to tie that together with what you said about Roman Greece, because you mentioned that Roman Greece, that he was destroying them because they were the exaltation. The church of, is going to destroy them. Right. And that because of the exaltation of the state. And you were talking about how one of the things that God is very likely punishing America for is the American church has said, we want to exalt the state. And so can you understand how you can look at the history and what God said the church was going to do? And when he sees his people exalting the thing that he said he would destroy, don't you understand how he would look at you and go, I'm going to punish you. And so, and all of a sudden, your election that's going to be coming up in the next 18 months, don't you sit there and go, this really matters. When I go into the ballot box, my vote is much less significant how many votes Christians put toward this person that it totals up. It's that every Christian that puts a vote toward someone who exalts the state, who exalts man, God's going to judge. And there's two different ways of exalting man, right? There's exalting man in the collective, which is the Roman idea, right? Is yep. that the state is. And then there's exalting man in the individual, which is the Greek idea, which is the expert, the worship of experts, right? I mean, these are the kingdoms we're supposed to be destroying. And instead of that, the church embraced that. So do you see why God might be judging the church in America? Right. And do you see how the very the low-level thing that you do might be tied really tightly to that, that it's not this inconsequential thing, not for how the vote turns out, but for how God looks at you and how he looks at his church, which drives the world. I mean, you know, at a certain point, God's going to destroy America. And just as he used, like, the fall of the Roman Empire to cause the gospel to spread, if he decides he has to destroy America, he'll use the fall of America to strengthen his church. And he won't go, oh, no, this is so horrible, I had to destroy this nation. He'll go, I'm destroying that thing that I said I was going to destroy because it's an enemy of who I am and what I what I declare. So, I mean, and we just we need to be understanding that he'll do that with Without hesitation. I was I was biting my tongue. I didn't know if I was going to bring this up, but but you say that, and, and I, I can't help but think about City of God, you know, Augustine's book. And if you've stayed with us, it's a huge book. It's a difficult book. Everybody ought to read it. If you've stayed with us 45 minutes into this podcast, then obviously you are a person of patience, so you can do it. <laughs> um, but But... But the reason I wanted to talk about it is because that's what Augustine is dealing with, is he's dealing with, he is a, a, a citizen of Rome at a time, he's writing this book, 420-something, 410, the Visigoths sack Rome, the city of Rome. And he's dealing with this issue where people are saying, oh, well, the pagan gods must be upset because Christianity is spreading. And because of that, you know, the gods are angry. And so he starts with, let me deal with that argument. Let's talk about what your pagan gods are. Actually, they're really demons. But, but along the way, he develops a philosophy of history, and his philosophy of history is realize that God is the creator, God is in charge of what's going on in the world, and fundamentally what's happening in the affairs of men is you have people who have two different loves. You have people who have a love for domination, a love for self, and then you have a people who have a love for God, and that that drives history. And, and so he's writing this as a citizen of Rome on the sunset of Rome saying, look at what God's doing. And this, this, this city, Rome, it's just going to pass away, but there's another city that's not going to pass away because God, 
One thing when you're thinking about history, though, is we can make it too simplistic. We can make it just kind of like, what is he doing with his the faithful? But God is actually causing all things to work together for good, including using those who aren't faithful, including using those who think they're Christians and are not. He uses it where he will gather a group of people to do something where those people are doing something that God wants to have happen, but it, and it's for the furtherance of his church, but the people doing it aren't really Christians. We need to recognize just how much control God has, and we can't be too simplistic about how we look at something. For instance, what happens before, you know, there's a great missionary movement that happens in the 19th century. And what happens in the 19th century, I mean, that's really driven by the Second Great Awakening. In the Second Great Awakening, there was a lot of really bad preaching. And there was a lot of things that were just a wrong view of who God is and the nature of God. And a real rejection of doctrine, a real rejection of handling Scripture properly— All these things play into the Second Great Awakening, but out of that, God causes a whole bunch of people to come in the church, which means the church now goes, we have more resources, we can do more things, and they end up sending a lot more missionaries out. You know, people like David Livingston go to to Africa, and but the gospel being sent there isn't that great, but because it's not that faithful, it's not that knowledgeable. And a lot of times it just has real false elements, but the Bible ends up going to these places and God uses that to build his church there. He uses that. So a hundred years later, there are people who have the Bible. There are people that are reading the Bible. And so we can, we can simplify it and make it really easy and just kind of go, it's all about the faithful of God and what God's doing with them. But God's plan is to cause all the elect, to bring all the elect to repentance. I mean, and this, this is very, it makes me think about like Billy Graham. We did an episode on Billy Graham, and I've spent a lot of time in the past little uh, episode really blew up in the, like again recently, and I spent a lot of time debating with people who they come in and they're going, you're trying to destroy Billy Graham's ministry. And it's like I recognize that there were times where Billy Graham, Billy Graham took the Bible to a lot of people. There were people that, that were saved because of Billy Graham's ministry. And, but the issue and not is— Not a single one of them was saved because of Billy Graham. Right. And, and the, there's a part of it where the, even in the case of where God does this in the world, the church shouldn't sit back and go anywhere he did it, everything that was done was great. They should sit back and go, were the people that, what should, what should we carry forward? What should we get rid of? What should we eliminate? What should we not, how should we be faithful even with the things that God did and caused to happen? Because if you don't, otherwise you just say, Anything that happened, I'm just going to perpetuate. And you become this very, you become this passive thing. And God wants his church to advance. He wants it to be moving the gospel forward. And you forget how God's operating. He's operating. It's back to the who's the head and who's the tail. And you look at Billy Graham. Billy Graham was the tail in a lot of ways. There's a reason why all the presidents met with him. It wasn't because of how great he was. I mean, it was also because that they knew that he wouldn't be that offensive to them Right. I mean, they they knew certain things. And so so Billy Graham was very much constrained. And that doesn't mean that God was constrained in how he how he used Billy Graham. But you don't look at Billy Graham and say, oh, I can disobey like Billy Graham did, because look at how God used Billy Graham. That's not the right answer. The right answer is, is let's stop being the tail and start to be the head. And the way that you're the head is you obey God. And then God will God will bless your ministry or he might kill you and make you a martyr and cause other people to. But. The answer is, are we following the statutes of God, not are we following men? 
Because you even have the obligation to look at what he did and go, some of the things that were done, the church should look at and go, those God allowed things to happen that the church should absolutely reject. The church should say, that was that person who did that while they were doing something that was good over here. There are huge parts of it that were evil, and we're not going to let that go forward. We're not going to carry that with us. And otherwise, you, do, you just continue to do that continue to do more damage and God ends up judging you as opposed to it being yes us learning from history I mean which is what we're supposed to do as opposed to learning from what God was trying to teach us by letting us see what happened and you just look at I mean like if you look at Billy Graham say everything he did was fine then you don't go what should we do now but if you look at Billy Graham and say, hey, a lot of times he brought unbelievers into the church. That was, I mean, he used manipulation techniques to bring people in. Well, that means what the church needs to do is figure out how to cleanse itself because it brought in a lot of filth. Right. Not that there, everything was filth. Nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying everybody that made a profession of faith that sometimes it was not God that was moving them. But we do know those techniques bring filth into the church. And right. so that means the church needs to cleanse itself. Of both the what was brought into the church, and of copying the techniques. Right, because the techniques bring more filth in, and the what, first right. thing you have to do is stop bringing the filth in. And so, you know, we talked about one thing to look at history and say, how is he using this to bring people to salvation? How is he using this to sanctify us personally? How is he using it to, to sanctify even a nation? Because he does do things with nations. He causes nations to repent. And then the other thing we also need to remember is God is using this and we should look at history and saying, what is he doing with his church? Because he is preparing his bride. That is what he's doing. Right? Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says, Husband, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So part of what God is doing, part of things that we should be looking in history is these things that he's doing. It's not just about salvation of individuals. It's about making a pure church that's a fit bride for Christ. You realize we live in the middle of these verses. You know, these verses talk about the moment Christ came to earth, and then it talks about what Christ will do at the end of everything. So we're in there. That's that's the period where we are right now, where Christ is using the water of his word to cleanse his bride. So... It, and, and then it says, this is why Christ came. He came for her. We know there's other things he came for. But but again, if you think about history, what are the foreground things? What are the background things? Christ didn't come for political kingdoms. He explicitly says elsewhere that he doesn't come for that. But he did come for a church. I mean, it, this even shows the importance of the word. And this even shows, you know, I was just talking about like Billy Graham bringing a lot of filth into the church. Well, bringing that filth into the church, what the church does, the visible church, because it has a large number of unbelievers in it, what's the first thing it's going to do? It's going to reject the word because the word washes it. So if you want to get the filth out of the church, what do you do? You start washing it with the water of the word, right? I mean, this is this is kind of how we should look at it and say, okay, this is what we need to respond to. We, what, we can see what happened. We can see how filth came in. We can see even that God used it for good. But that also puts us in a position where we're saying this is the next thing that we should do. And what we really need to do as the visible church is make it much more word-focused so that we can start to cleanse the filth that was brought into it. And that's going to cause lots of divisions. That's what happened in, you know, 
the book of First Corinthians, it talks about that. I mean, it changes your attitude towards the things that happen. Because all of a sudden, if you go, this is what has happened, and this is what we need to do, when you start doing it and you expect there to be divisions, when there are divisions, you don't go, oh, no, where are all these divisions coming from? You go, as you know, as we expected, this is, this wrinkles. is going to come. And, and you don't do it with the wrong attitude. You do it with humility. But you also sit back and go, this is what's required. And so as we look back through history about things like the printing press, right, I mean— the printing press was at the right time so that it was 100 years before the Reformation so that the Reformation could change the world through the printing press, right? I mean, God is putting— No, the printing press caused the Reformation. The printing press <laughs> definitely did not cause the Reformation. And just, you know, the same thing with then through the Reformation, you get a consolidation of language, and that consolidation of language, whether it's French or German or English and, you know, all these other things, that allows the spread of the gospel. And so we can just— look through history and see how God, in its in a specific moment, it can be hard to say, how is God when he's confused the language more? Because now we have people speaking, you know, our, our native village language, and then we have somebody speaking the regional language, and then we're having somebody speak, you know, say in France, French. And now it's more confused, and it's easy to look at that moment in time and going, well, it's more confused than it ever was before. We can't communicate with everybody in our village like we used to be able to. Instead of going, no, God is actually moving it so that the gospel can spread. Because a hundred years after that, everyone could talk to everyone. I right. mean, in that exactly. area, and, and everybody in France, basically, right. or everybody in England, or everybody in Germany. And it causes you—it causes you to think very diff- differently about the difficulties in your time. You know, I mean, it causes you. To, I mean, it's—it's. It's, we did an episode recently on prayer, and we talked about how. When you pray, you know, I mean, that it causes you, it causes, it changes the way you think about what God's doing in your life. And there's this part of it where when you look at history, it does the same thing, and it, and it affects your prayers because now all of a sudden you can, you're actually praying, asking God, is this what you're doing here? Is this, I need to think about this in Give a me comp- wisdom, right? I need to think about this in a different way. Help me understand what's happening. I mean, we talked about this at our church this past week about how as much difficulty as there is in the world. When the Reformation happened, the nations, many of the, so many of the churches and nations and groups and peoples that are here today didn't even exist. You know, I mean, like, I mean, the the new world, I mean, the, 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 everything in the new world hadn't been colonized at that point. So all of the nations and representation in the new world, basically, was no, none of that was here. And so there's this part of it where, in some ways, you look at it and you go, the world is worse. The world is not worse than it was. And at the same time, God did all of that in 500 years. And there should just be a sense of awe when you look at that, when you look at how much the world has changed just in that time period and how much more order there is in the world and how much more light there is in the world in real ways. And so when you see that, you go, this isn't beyond God sorting out at all. If he could make all this in that time period, then just it just needs additional organization. It just needs additional cleaning. And yeah, it might get a little darker before it gets lighter, but he's he is going to do it because look at what he's already done. Now, I mean, just a one, there could be a lot of examples of that, but one I was thinking about recently is like today you sail on a ship to basically any country in the world and you pull up to the port and everyone's wearing clothes. 
and there's there's stuff for you to unload your ship. Even the you know worst countries, almost all of them. I don't know if there are any examples. I know some pretty bad countries. They have ports. You go, you unload your ship. Now, I did say ports because if you go to the beach, it could be a very different story. But just, that's something that's very different. Where a lot of these countries, you'd you know, four hundred years, you'd show up and they'd be they wouldn't be wearing clothes. I mean, just that picture is a small way in which and things if you have massively your stuff, changed. They would steal it. Yes, and you would yeah. never see it again. And yeah, you, you're, you'd be full of errors. <laughs> and and you, you might be dinner. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah. even a few months ago, I went to a place where 80 years ago, people showed up and they killed them for, ba- for preaching the gospel. And now you can text those people. Think about that shift. And I'm not, you know, they... In just the embracing. You're not saying they're all Christians now. No, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that, well, my point is, is look at the huge jump in order that took place where there's these tribes that people say, how dare you even express these things so that you kill them to the point where most of them have cell phones now that can at least text. When you think about that, yeah, that's really remarkable. And God is using that because they all now have access to the gospel that they didn't have before, and that doesn't mean they're saved. But look at the access to the gospel that they have today where anybody can go out on the Internet and, and read the Bible if they want to. They don't even have to have that. Everybody can communicate with people. You can organize things. I mean, it's just such a huge shift forward. And we can look at all the problems, and we can look in the United States and the decline of the churches, and you can right, we can, we can do a litany of the problems. But at the same time, we should remember, God is advancing the church. God is spreading the church to the nations. He is not like, just because we're looking at how we're spiraling down doesn't mean that that's what God is doing through the world. He's building his church. He's cleansing his church. And we should we should really praise him for it. Right. And, and there's a part of it where looking at history can help you do that if you look at it rightly. So, the, so there's a good quote from Robert E. Lee on this subject uh, where he said this, The march of providence is so slow and our desires so impatient, the work of progress so immense, and our means of aiding it so feeble. The life of humanity is so long that of the individual so brief that we often see only the ebb of the advancing wave and thus are discouraged. It is history that teaches us to hope. And so he's talking there about, you know, God's work in the world and how it can be easy to seem like things are getting worse. But if you have the broader view, you know, interpreted through the right worldview and through the right interpretive grid, you have real reason to hope because you see you see how God has worked in real ways in the past. And I think when we even when we and I mean, I don't disagree. It's a fantastic quote. But it's so often the reason the context of what he means by the March of Providence is so slow. You we're not fair in how we compare things. I mean, we work for companies that want to do projects, and they all think they can do the project 100 times faster than they think they can. They can. That, right, that they can do it 100 times faster, and frequently they couldn't even do it even – I mean, they couldn't even make it happen. But there's this part where look in your home. How many of you in your home have said, I'm going to do X? You're, I'm going to reorganize the living room. I'm going to – we're going to paint – and it took you – it took you a year to, to start, you know, what I mean, I mean, and 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 not with you even not being lazy. There were times where it was just there were so many other things happening. You had children, you had little, you know. I mean, all these things going on, and then we sit back and we go, "Why so slow, God?" And transform, you know, I mean, and you look at the way things have actually changed, and it's happened much faster than you than we really even should think is possible. The 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 change that is happening is a miracle, and he's right. It is slow. It's slower than we want it to be. But 
we're just not we're, we're very unreasonable in the way we measure things we're very unreasonable in our expectations we think we can change ourselves faster than these other things and it takes time for ourselves and that's the mercy of god right i mean there's probably a billion to two billion people that have heard the gospel in the last hundred years that had no idea about it right like a a third of the world population or a quarter of the world population over the last hundred years, that's where the gospel has gone. And we act like, oh, so, no, it's actually a pretty big deal. Well, and those billion people weren't, wouldn't have even been alive. Right. But uh, even if you look at percentage, right? I mean, by percentage, by numbers, by all of it, it's a huge increase very rapidly. But we look back and go, oh, yeah, the gospel's dying. Well, no, our sin make, gives us this view of the weakness of the gospel while the reality of what's actually happening, if we actually see, as as Robert E. Lee said, as we actually look, history should give us hope. Yes. The other thing that is important to recognize, too, right, we talked about what he's doing in terms of saving individuals, what he's doing about the church, and he is he did come to establish his kingdom. He did come to rule the, the nations with a rod of iron. He did come, and he is— as ruling the nations and as with the church, he is destroying the nations of the world, which is what the promise was in Daniel 2, 44 and 45. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. You look at it, and it says the kingdom won't be left to another people. That means the king cannot die. That is Christ. He's the king that doesn't die. Right? And it says it's a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. This is the kingdom that Christ came and he established. And what he's doing is he is defeating and causing all the other kingdoms of the earth to be broken into pieces. And so when we look at what's happening in the history around us, we should be looking and saying, how is he breaking all these other kingdoms? And the same thing, you know, you look at the American Revolution. In the American Revolution, we basically throw off the king. Well, now how many places have real kings? Almost none. When you think about that, that's like huge because before that in history, every, you know, until since Edom – to, to, you know, 1776 or so, pretty much every nation of the earth had a king who really had power, not, not, a, not, not a figurehead, but somebody that really had power. And then, you know, after 3,500 years of that, all of a sudden in 250 years, there's, there's almost none. And that's a huge movement, and that is God breaking, and breaking up the kingdoms of this earth. And even the ones that are left, like, North Korea, you look at it and it's like a cartoon to us. Right. It's, but, but they, they used to be all over the place. And Little kings the, who thought that they had all the power. And, and even there, they have to call it the Democratic Republic. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, not that it is, but that's what they have to call it. We should look at what God is doing in nations, too, because and look at how he's tearing down these philosophies that came from nations and doing all these things. So when we consider history, because God promises that is what he will do, and that is what he is doing. And so when we look and we see events, we should always put that in the perspective too, is what is God doing to build his kingdom? 
And he tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So obviously we're supposed to be about building the kingdom as well. Right. I mean, there's lots of things from it. You look at the spread of Muslims across Europe and the, you know, them being fruitful and having children and that and the European countries not having children and the landscape of Europe very much changing in real ways that in, you know, 20 years, 30 years, it's going to be a very different place. It's already becoming a different place in real ways. I mean, you see there are things happening all over the world that you can look at and you can say, here are things that God should be, that God is telling us we should pay attention to. We should notice things that, that scream against the, the things that the world is teaching and that, that preaches against the wisdom of the world. And I mean, it's just there's you could you could just sit here and just start listing off thing after thing after thing that you can if you look at the news and you see the things that are happening where God is showing. Do you understand? Do you do you recognize things that what I care about? Do you understand the truth that I've told you that you should do? I mean, it's it's not a short list of things. So many things that have happened in this world that we can look at and we can say, how could we be so insane? For instance, you look at what the U.S. did with China. Now, Bill Clinton was giving us, giving China all the secrets. For like 40 years, everybody was embracing this communist dictatorship, right? Contrary to everything that the U.S. said that it stood for. Russia's bad, China's good, but China and Russia both have the same political and economic systems, basically. But yet we say one's like the evil empire, and the other one we're giving all our technology to. But you look at what God's doing and take a step back in that all of a sudden China becomes like the gospel goes through China. And if you look at it from a secular viewpoint, you have to come up with really weird explanations as to why we treated China. So we're at war with Russia and trying to contain Russia. And basically the State Department, the U.S. State Department, manipulates things so that Chiang Kai-shek takes over China at the same time. I mean – this it is makes no right? This is this is this is right after World, World War II, II right? Or, but you just look at these things, and if you try to do it by the great man theory, that doesn't work very well. If you try to do it by the societal events, why would we like completely change our philosophy of economics and our philosophy of 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 politics? But then if you look at it, what's God doing, that he's causing the gospel to spread, all of a sudden you can understand why we would be so blind that, I mean, it wasn't until President Trump all of a sudden said, why are we giving everything to China, that people actually went, that's kind of stupid. You know, and Democrats and Republicans went, yeah, it is kind of stupid to give all that stuff to China after we've been doing it for 70 years. And so we just need to, but then you step back and you go, look at how many professed Christians there are in China now, and you go, ah, that's what God's doing. Right. And I think it's, it's, we don't think about history in that way. We don't think that God, we don't think that God would cause something like that to a country to, uh, you know, I mean, we just don't think that he would cause things in the way that he does do things. And I mean, but the truth is, is when you look at it at a, at a local level, it happens all the time at a local level. It happens all the time with like people that we know. And governments are really no different than that. I mean, governments are just people. And I think there's a part of it where in our head, it's our exaltation of the state. It's our exaltation of, of what the state represents that we would think to God it's any different. God's like, the, the state is no different than me causing your neighbor to change his attitude towards you so that he's either antagonistic towards you or he becomes positive towards you for different reasons for your ability to share the God. I mean, things that we pray about, that we talk about, that we deal with, 
but he does. He looks at nations and goes, "Nations are my playthings. They're the things that I use to, to well, bless the world." And uses to crush with the rod of iron because right. it says he rules the nations with the rod of iron, and it's just so important that we look at these things and that we see them because you look at again this is the old testament but you look at the book of isaiah and isaiah says he does this to nations and now we look and we want to make it the gospel completely individual and that's not how the gospel spread you look at paul and paul goes to different areas and he goes to macedonia and he goes to greece and he goes to rome and he goes to different areas and now they were more fragmented then but and, and it goes and spreads in these places, and we then turn back and go, oh, it's about individuals. Well, no, that's not, that's not how it works. It is both about groups and about individuals. And in, and in both cases, it's both about groups and individuals in the context of how God relates to them, not in the context. You know what I mean? It's, ne- it's not in the primary context of how they relate to one another. It's how God is working out his will through them. And so to go back to the example of China, it's very easy for people in the church to go, you know, because most people that would be evangelical would be not Roman Catholic, say. Most of them fall into the camp of going, yeah, we're conservative and this is wrong and that we shouldn't have been giving all this stuff to China. And that's all true. And at the same time, we should be going, glory be to God, because this caused the spread of the gospel in China. And it's very easy for us to to just hold a position where we're holding the position and we're just thinking about it economically or we're just thinking about it politically instead of going, we're supposed to obey God. So it doesn't, God will do what he will do. We're still required to obey God. So I'm not saying that we throw away our philosophies. But what I am saying is we should still turn around and celebrate God when God furthered what God says he's doing in the world. I mean, very specifically, you're not saying that we should encourage America to give our technological secrets to China. No, I mean, I mean that, that's, right. that's very dangerous and very unwise. And the same thing in the church. When we look at something like COVID, we're supposed to look at COVID and not just go, okay, so God wasn't pleased with our worship, but we should also praise God because how many churches, I know a number of churches that split because of COVID or functionally split. Maybe they didn't actually have a split, but but half the church came, half the church came back after COVID, right after it was shut down and opened up again. Half the church comes back because half goes, forget it, I'm not going back. I'd rather Zoom a different service. Well, that's a great blessing because God used COVID to cleanse the church. And there were a lot of churches that there were divides over how important is worship. Well, God used COVID to drive that conversation, and that is a huge blessing to the church, and he was cleansing the church. It's a tough thing to say if you think that the blessing to the church is how many people are in the doors. Right. If you think how many people actually believe God, want to follow God, fear God. Want to worship God. You know, I I would say fear God probably is the big one that you could demarcate that. Those who don't fear God didn't come back to church. And that was going back to Ephesians 5, Jesus is cleansing his church. And the people who want to hear the word are the people that are there. And it's a chance for the church to reset, start over. You can start growing again, but you can't grow for the sake of numbers. You know, there was a movement generation or so ago that was all about numbers. And God said, no, let's just end that. Let's move right. things backwards because that's not how the church is actually going to prosper. 
And another big movement that I see in the church right now is there's been a distinct rise of Calvinism since you know, the, the late 20th century that you know, Calvinism has become a lot more popular, a lot more widespread. Well, that's the word going forth, and God is cleansing his church through his word because more people are understanding what the word actually describes God and how it actually portrays who he is. And we should look at that and not think that that's some secondary little minor thing that's happening. That is huge. That is huge for the future of America. That's huge for the future of the church. Coming back to seeing God for who he is, on the one side we have that we don't want to retain God in our knowledge, so you have the rise of homosexuality and the rise of all this other perversity in our society. But on the other hand, you have a group of people, and not all of them are faithful by any means, right? I mean, got the, Mark Driscoll run, out there. That got, right. The young radical and reform movement had all kinds of problems in it. But at the same time, there is this new focus on theology, this new focus on what does the Bible say that, that will have huge impacts in the future because those things really matter. That's what actually drives the future. I don't know about you, Charles. I mean, I would say I— I'm a child of that. I became a Calvinist in late 90s, early 2000s. Just, and I can look back and say, oh, this is because I had access to books and things that my father didn't have access to because they weren't things published by Dallas Theological Seminary. You know, there was Christian book distributors started the catalog where you could buy theology books. There were new publishers. Then the internet comes along. Amazon comes along. Amazon started, if you remember, as somebody was selling books. Right. And if, if there was a book that was being published, they sold it. And it was a real blessing to the church. And that was, all of those things were big parts of this thing of allowing people to become Calvinists by finding doctrines and things that they didn't know existed before. It's very easy to look at, you know, here's what's happening with Biden and Trump and not recognize these things that are happening in the church will have far greater impact. You know, and even in the kingdom, one of the things that I remember when AIDS was really bad in Africa because it was far worse in Africa than it was in the U.S. And then all of a sudden, Uganda, I mean, they had like a revival there because of AIDS. And you can look at AIDS and say how horrible it is. But then you look at a place like Uganda and all of a sudden, I mean, their their view of the world like changed and turned 180 degrees even the unbelievers in Uganda, I'm not saying they all became Christians. That's right. not the point. But the point is God destroyed these these political and economic systems and said, you know, AIDS is a way to destroy those things. And and we look at it and we want to think about AIDS and think about it as, oh, this terrible disease or maybe it's judgment on homosexuality. But God was also using it to expand his kingdom. And there's a part where God sent judgment and they heard. You know what right, I mean? They, right. they, they, they felt they the like judgment. Nineveh, right? I mean, they said, God, you know, right. They, they had one of the highest percentages of AIDS in Africa, maybe the highest. I don't remember. But, you know, it was very significant. And they basically went, What are we going to do? And their answer was, Fear God. Whereas that was very much not the attitude of the United States. Right. And so you see greater judgment. The, chur- come. the churches in the United States basically said, God would not do that which means that they never read their Old Testament. Because you read the Old Testament and you find out God's not that hesitant to kill people. He does right. it all the time. And then, I mean, and, and so you should recognize God sends more judgment. And then there's a point where it'll hit Isaiah-level passages where he goes, I have beaten you. You're black and blue from head to toe. Why should I continue to beat you? Instead, I'm just going to destroy you. I'm just going to, you know, I mean, why should I continue to do this? And so there's a part of where if you look at Scripture and you look at history, 
you can understand why you would begin to be concerned that America is at a point where there's been judgment, 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 and it's ramping up, and it's ramping up to the point where that where Romans says it's where I turn you over to absolute destruction. That's where we are. Is we're, we should expect to be very close to where God turns us over to absolute destruction. Is the level of knowledge that we have compared to the level of knowledge Israel or Judah had is just you know, as a people we have far more knowledge in America, and yet we look and we go, yeah, God would destroy Judah, God would destroy Israel, but He wouldn't destroy America. Yes, He would. If we're that hard-hearted, if we're that foolish to trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ, of course he would. And he'll make it be good for the church. He'll use it for the good of the church. He'll still use it, and it might be not for the universal church, right? For the invisible church, he'll make it good for. It doesn't mean that we might not all die, but that's okay because God will use it to bless his church. So we talk about history and how important it is to say, what is God doing? And one element of that is in the book of Daniel, you see God, Daniel crying out to God saying, God, show me what you're doing. Show me. You've, you've told me what the future is going to be. Tell me what these things mean. This is what our attitude has to be. God, you've done these things. Show me what it means. Show it, me what it means we should be doing because God is working his will in the world. And we're supposed to be, as Christ told us, you know, we're supposed to be praying that I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But that also means we're making decisions so that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven because that's what he's working towards. That's what he's fulfilling on this earth. And so we should be crying out to God for wisdom and how to see what he's doing so we can participate in it and be faithful servants and faithful stewards. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.